Good morning. Uh, the scripture reading for today is John chapter 3, verse 16. Uh, you can find that in your pew Bibles on page 1030. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light, because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light, and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light, so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this promise of eternal life, um, that you loved us so much that you gave your own life for us um, when we did nothing to deserve it. I pray now, Father, that you would be with my dad as he comes and um, gives your word to us. Open our eyes and open our hearts and allow your spirit to do his work today. In your name I pray. Amen. Thank you, Abby. I like it when that happens, by the way. I'd like you to keep your Bibles open to John chapter 3. We will pick up at verse 16 here in just uh, a couple of minutes. I don't know if you're having the same experience as me and my household, but we get much more junk mail then we get useful, necessary, and important mail. How about you? Some days, that's all it is. uh, On Tuesday, I got a whole fistful. I mean, uh, like, I don't know how many pieces it was. A fistful. And in the middle was one piece of uh, mail or information that we needed. I'm just glad I looked through it, right? Rather than thinking, this is all junk mail, throwing it out. And we do have to be very careful to make sure nothing of substance, nothing important gets stuck in the middle of the junk mail and mistakenly thrown out. Now, I want you to hold that thought. All of what is important getting lost because there's so much junk around it. Just keep that thought for a second or a few minutes. If we collected all the junk mail that we receive on a given day or a given week or a given month or even a given year... It would be by multiples upon multiples upon multiples of wasted ink, wasted paper, wasted time and attention, just for us to dismiss, ignore, and then discard it. At the same time, we're receiving more and more and more junk coming across our paths, into our homes, on our televisions, in our vehicles, in the form of junk mail, advertisements, and veritable, a veritable host of noise and images, a nearly infinite number of sources. The volume of junk is numbing us more generally to what is valuable, what is good, what is right, and what is true. And this is where relativism comes in. Relativism... 
is the philosophy or the belief that there is no absolute truth, but only the particular truths that a particular individual or a particular culture believe to be true. So nothing has intrinsic value. Nothing is absolutely true. Nothing is truly good and right except that which we subjectively judge to be valuable, good, right, and true. With the dawn of computing in the mid-20th century, we, were, we are said to have entered what sociologists and others have called the information age. And it superseded the industrial age, which had persisted for the previous 100 or so years since about 1850 is usually the date that is given for the beginning of the industrial age, something, some, some, sometime around that, uh, that date. Well, today, I would not be the first to observe we've entered into a much darker derivative period that seems only to be accelerating exponentially from the information age, and let's call it the disinformation age. The loss of very nearly all philosophical, ethical, and moral absolutes combined with the emergence of artificial intelligence and quantum computing, there's an aspect of the future that could be truly terrifying. And no one, no one knows what it's going to look like or how it's going to go. This is a global experiment that's happening right now. But this much is certain. Truth will be harder and harder to discern. Truth will be harder and harder to discern. So my assertion this morning, at least in this introductory word or two, is that all the noise from a nearly infinite variety of sources from the outside enters into our minds, enters into our hearts, our homes, our families, our institutions, even our churches, to such an extent it's disturbingly and increasingly difficult to discern between good and evil, true and false, right and wrong, valuable and worthless. And we should make no mistake... It's no illusion that what the Bible identifies as most valuable, good, right, and true is becoming less and less so in the world around us. And this increasing distance between right and wrong, good and evil, valuable and worthless, true and false, is a continuing reflection of the growing distance between humanity, between us and our Creator. And that distance will continue to grow until Jesus returns and makes all things new. Which is to say, truly and thoroughly valuable, good, right, and true, he will make all things. We find one of Scripture's greatest future promises in Jesus' words from Revelation. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. But in the interim, this is one of the most important reasons we value the Bible as God's word to us above all other sources of so-called truth, what Francis Schaeffer called total truth. The Bible is total truth because it is God's word written and it stands and it has stood every test against it. We should also say what we've said many times before. The supreme, the supreme expression, I don't know, Dan, there it is, 
Just one second. Dan, are you changing them or is this working? Just the last one? I'll try it again. This is a new clicker. The old clicker wasn't working, and so we're, we're doing something. So we're having technical difficulties, in other words, and we were hoping it wouldn't be obvious to you, but now it is. So we should also say, as I'm processing this with you, what we've said many times before, the supreme expression of truth was, is, and forever will be the word embodied in the person of God's Son, manifested in the man Jesus Christ, and him crucified, risen, and forever exalted as King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, last Sunday, we began to look at the true biblical Christian discipleship. What is that? We began to look at it from the Gospel of John. We actually started in chapter 2, but we're mainly focusing on chapter 3 here these days. And if you weren't with us last week or you haven't had a chance to catch that message as many were preparing for our fellowship meal downstairs, it might be helpful to roll up onto our Bethesda Church YouTube channel to catch up. Now, I just want to say a word of thanks to all of those who made last Sunday possible, especially those who were behind the scenes and not in church. Last last week, I remember thinking, hey, we've got a nice little crowd here. And, I, and we had half as many downstairs getting everything together and ready. And I was just quite amazed. It was a great day. Uh, thank you for everyone who did anything to make it happen. And thank you for all who just attended, which that also is a pretty important thing. We'd hate, hate to do all these preparations and nobody come. So we're very, very glad that you all were part of it. But as we saw last week in the message... The first step to true biblical Christian discipleship actually begins before we become disciples of God in Christ Jesus, when the Holy Spirit begins to draw us to God for salvation, as he did Nicodemus. True biblical Christian discipleship then begins and continues with hearing Jesus. So as for Nicodemus, we too begin to hear Jesus before we actually believe. This morning, I'd like for us to look at the second step in becoming and remaining truly biblical Christian disciples, which is moving beyond merely hearing Jesus, which is an important first step, to believing Jesus. What have we believed that we have not yet heard? Or read? Or somehow had passed on to us? No, we've got to move beyond hearing, even with understanding, to believing. And when we say, and, and much more importantly, what the Bible says, when the, when the Bible says, believe Jesus, it's not just a one-time for salvation kind of a thing, at least not for true biblical Christian disciples. That's not anything you'll find in the Bible. One-time decisions for Jesus, so-called, for salvation, might work to make religious converts, but certainly not true biblical Christian disciples, because true biblical Christian discipleship is a lifelong endeavor. We're growing up into the knowledge of Christ, and we never get finished growing up into the knowledge of Christ. And this is where we'll do well, I think, to review the central truth of our message for this morning and our series two. I've already uh, asked you to look at it. Was that me or was that you, Dan? Was that me? Okay, good. Here it is. True biblical Christian discipleship is a life continuously transformed. Now, let me pause there for a second. 
That's a pretty daunting statement. Does this mean that I am on a never-ending, no-slowing-down trajectory to, to God and to heaven, or I'm not, I'm not a true Christian? No. All of us have graphs that look like that, right? We might even plateau for a while, and then we start back up again. But the growth is continuous. If, if we've, we've got this. You've, you've all seen charts, I think, where you've got, a, got a, an up-and-down um, path, but then you draw the line, and the line it shows the overall direction. So while we're up and down and up and down, our trajectory is upward. True biblical Christian discipleship is a life continuously transformed by God's word and spirit into the image of God's son, our Lord Jesus Christ, which, by the way, is our original purpose to begin with. We were created to bear God's image on the earth and represent him. This is a a restoration of our purpose in Christ. Okay, so for the rest of our time and the remainder of our attention this morning, we'll mostly be looking at the most familiar verse in the whole Bible, John 3.16. I don't often preach on this verse because it's so familiar and famous, and I'm not even sure I've done it here before, but I'm glad to be here today because there is a a bit of a, a vision for it. And then we'll look at the few that follow it briefly today and pick up there next week. Here it is. The most famous of all verses. Was that you or me? It was you? Yeah, I don't know what's going on here. You just take it, okay? (laughs) For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And and while we've discussed this first point that I'm about to make before, I, I think it's essential that we note it every time we deal with John 3, verse 16, because we normally hear it wrongly. And and that is the, the little but influential English word in this verse 16, so... For God so loved the world. Now in contemporary English usage, the word so is almost exclusively exclusively used as either first an adverb, an adverb is a modifier of verbs or other modifiers. This adverb normally enhances or increases the word it modifies, such as, here's an example. I hope you'll like this example. I was impressed with my cleverness here. The sermon was so good. How good was it? Time seemed to stand still. Well, the preacher preached that sermon that was so good, right? This is likely how most of us hear John 3.16, that God so loves us, meaning a bunch. He loves us a lot. The other most common use of so in contemporary English is as a conjunction or a transition word, such as we routinely get to church early so we don't disrupt the service. That's a good idea. 
We routinely get to church early, unlike me this morning, so we won't disrupt the service. But neither of these captures the intended meaning of Jesus' most famous words. In fact, I'm sorry to say, they both diminish what Jesus is saying, and they make what he is saying smaller and less true. Indeed, it's better, more accurate, and more truthful to leave the so out entirely. It's not in the, in the Greek text. A better, more accurate, and more truthful way of translating John 3.16 from the biblical New Testament Greek into good, theologically sound, and equally understandable English is this. For in this way. And that's the word that's there in the Greek text, udite, udite. The first two words are udite gar, which means for, in this way. For in this way God loved the world. He gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So this, so this is a purpose statement. In this way, God loved the world. How did he love the world? He gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So we're moving from our familial, familial, familiar historical understanding from the quantity of God's love which is truly great, to a more contextual understanding of the cost and the quality of God's love. For in this way, God loved the world. How did God love the world? He gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This is very close to what Henry Blackaby in Experiencing God, Knowing and Doing the Will of God says about God's love. He says over and over again, it's a, it's a theme throughout the entire study, God's love for us was settled at the cross. God's love for us was settled at the cross. In other words, God simply could not have done any more than he did. And what he did do to prove his love, and, and what did he do to prove his love for the whole world? To settle the fact of his love? Answer, he gave his only son. The second thing that I'd like for us to, to look at in this most familiar verse is Jesus' reference to the world. Just who or what is the world here? And for those of you who are keeping score, the word in Greek is cosmos. And you've heard that word a lot. Cosmological, for example, comes from this word cosmos. And it means the entire material realm of existence. The universe, if you will. Well... The biblical Christian arguments about what Jesus is talking about here when he says that God in this way loved the world. Who is the world? What is the world? There are basically three biblical Christian arguments. There are a bunch of other arguments, but they're neither biblical nor Christian. But these are the three biblical Christian arguments. First of all, the world might refer to just those God in Christ Jesus intends to save. You've heard them referred to, I'm sure, as the elect. Personally, I don't believe that's it, mainly because that's not what Jesus says. I think in our meaning, when we understand things, I think the first uh, line of qualification ought to be what the text actually says. And this is not what Jesus says. 
Secondly, the world might refer to all people everywhere from which God in Christ Jesus will call out those whom he intends to save. I think we're getting closer here, but I also don't believe that is what he's getting at. It's still too small. What is the word he used? Cosmos. The whole created material world. The universe. The cosmos. So the third, and, and, and the argument that I have adopted, is that the world is what Jesus actually said and meant, which is, of course, the cosmos, the, the whole of creation. Yes, Jesus came to save sinners, but he also came to make all things new. And every human being is a part of God's good creation. We are living in the cosmos, a very small part of it, but we're still part of his creation. So, so human beings would be included, but not all human beings. The Bible is clear. Being born of the Spirit leads to belief and salvation. This understanding would also seem to be borne out in two complementary passage, passages. First of all, of course you knew I had to get to Romans 8 sometime at some point. And here we are. We read in verse 19 and following, For the creation, see that? For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. Verse 21. In hope that the creation itself... What do you think he's talking about here? He's talking about the creation, right? Will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We could stop here and ask how, and it's through everything that Jesus did in his life, on the cross, in the resurrection, for our justification. He's now at the right hand of God, interceding for all the saints, it says. But his atonement, his atoning work, goes far beyond the salvation of human beings, but to the restoration of this entire cosmos. You see that? Verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, don't miss this, look at verse 21, in hope that the creation itself would be set free. Verse 24, for in this hope, so we share the same hope, in this hope we were saved. For God, in this way, loved the world that he gave his only son. So yes, in this hope we were saved. But the larger theological point of this passage is that the whole world, the whole creation, the cosmos, if you will, is also saved in a sense, also rescued in a sense, also restored in a sense, and also, by Jesus' own words, Revelation 21.5, made new by God's work in Jesus Christ on the cross cross and in the resurrection. For in this way, God loved the world. But also, perhaps more on point, and that was pretty much on point, in John's first general letter, chapter 2, He writes this, My little children, 
I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does not sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation. We've talked about this before. You can also use the the phrase atoning sacrifice. I love this word. I I wish we could learn what propitiation means and it would become a regular uh, term in our vocabulary because it doesn't only mean atoning sacrifice. So in, in, in the Holy of Holies, this is in the temple, right? Or the tabernacle, either one. In the Holy of Holies, there was the place on the top of the Ark of the Covenant where the blood sacrifice would be offered to God. That place is called the mercy seat. This word propitiation is a translation of a word from the Greek, hilasterion, which means mercy seat. So what this means, this word propitiation, is that that Jesus was the blood, the means... Jesus was the place where that means was given on the mercy seat. And Jesus was the person who presided over that sacrifice. And in this case, his own. It's an incredibly powerful word, propitiation. Uh, Atoning sacrifice gets at it, makes it a little bit more clear, only because we know what both those words mean, generally speaking. But propitiation is a beautiful, wonderful word. He is, that is, Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also, watch it now, for the sins of the whole world. Now, there is a biblical, an unbiblical, unchristian argument that both in John 3.16 and here in John, uh, 1 John 2 and verse 2, that this means that everybody in the world ever, no matter what they've done, will be saved. There's no indication in the Bible that that is true. If you read the rest of the Bible, you know that can't be true. There are a lot of scurrilous characters in the Bible, and they are condemned to death and hell, and there's no question about that. And uh, that's true today also. It doesn't take, to be, take you know, being just a scurrilous character altogether. You don't have to kill anybody. Um, you just have to be an unbeliever, a sinner, a person who says, no thanks, God, I'll go my own way. Okay. Salvation requires repentance and faith, and we'll, we'll get to that in a bit. Now, we can wrangle about the extent of the whole world here. The whole cosmos is, is, the, is the phrase. But one thing we do know, everything that needed to be done to make all things new, Jesus did. In his life, lived perfectly free of sin. In his perfect obedience, all the way to the cross. And he is now perfectly restored in the resurrection and is waiting to make all things new for the Father to say, go. So, for in this way, God loved the world, that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And I do believe that whoever means whoever, but whoever what? Whoever believes in him, right? That's what the text says should not perish and have eternal life. I want to say one more thing about this rightly most famous and familiar verse in the Bible. Whoever you are, whatever you've heard, 
Whatever anyone believes or teaches, whatever your theological tendencies, this is the will of God. For in this way God loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is the will of God for you and for your family and for every person and family who ever lived on the earth that whoever believes in Jesus, whoever in the world reads or hears and believes in him, God wills that you, that we, that they out there not perish but that you, that we, that they have eternal life. This is the true gospel. So how about you? Could this be the day of your salvation? Because here's the thing. Jesus says that God's will for you is that you not perish, but that you have eternal life. And you don't have to do anything to get it, except believe. And in fact, there's nothing you can do to get this eternal life in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus did it already. Saving faith itself is a gift of God's grace by the Holy Spirit that we receive from him and only him. It's not something we go out and acquire. It's something that he does for us and in us. So believing is not so much doing something as receiving something. Even the faith to believe is something that we get. Just as surely as God gave us his son, he also gives us faith to believe in his son. Now, the rest of this passage, John 3.16 to 21, deserves treatment all its own. I I know and I confess that, but we're not going to have time for that this morning. I think I will open with it next Sunday uh, and cut down the introductory um, material that I normally offer. But having said that, it really is, these next five verses, it really is further explanation and extending the implications of John 3.16. It's a working through the implications of John 3.16. But I do want to deal with one issue before we go, because it's vitally important that we get this right, and that is the concept of condemnation. Condemnation. You see, immediately after this most profound of gospel verses, John 3.16 comes, believe it or not, John 3.17, where Jesus gives us what would be the opposite of eternal life, which is ultimately condemnation. Verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So I'd like to define the word, the verb condemn, which, from which we get the noun condemnation, and then work briefly through several complementary Bible texts to get the fuller, I believe, biblical meaning and substance of condemnation or what it means to condemn or be condemned. And in doing so, I'd like to answer questions such as, what is this condemnation that Jesus is talking about here in John 3.17? Are there different types or levels of condemnation? Perhaps a condemnation with a big C and a condemnation with a little C. And as Paul asks in his conclusion of Romans 8 verse 34, who is to condemn for those who are in Christ Jesus? 
So the beloved OED, Oxford English Dictionary, defines condemn as to express an unfavorable or adverse judgment on, to indicate strong disapproval of, to censure, to pronounce to be guilty, to sentence to punishment. And it gives the example, to condemn a murderer to life imprisonment. Or, and I've added, biblically speaking, in addition, but but not exclusively, to condemn an unrepentant sinner or an unbeliever to hell. But is that the only biblical meaning? No, it's not. Are there lesser, lesser condemnations for us to be aware of? Yes, there are. So let's just quickly look at what, we, what I believe to be a representative sample of the Bible's teaching on the concept and meaning of condemnation or what it means to be condemned or to condemn another. Of course, the first level of condemnation would be, following that example in the OED, to condemn to death. Probably the most famous and familiar example of this is also found in the Gospel of John with the woman caught in adultery. Where's the man? I don't know, but he's, he's, he's not there. Obviously, the uh, scribes and Pharisees had an agenda. Here it is in John chapter 3. Listen carefully, please. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. They said to him, that him being Jesus, Teacher, This woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Where's the man? I don't know. So so what do you say? Verse 6. This they said to test him, that they might have some charge against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away, one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Verse 10, Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, Where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. So here, this woman was condemned to death by the religious leaders of her day. And Jesus brings her what we could call the reprieve. Um, Because those who condemned her, would condemn her to death, were no more worthy of life than she was. That's the point. In Luke's gospel, we get a hint of a lesser type of condemnation, a, a condemnation that we can and do do to others that's a bit short of death or hell, but condemnation, condemnation nonetheless. It's found in another rather familiar passage, Jesus speaking here, Luke chapter 6, verses 37 and 38. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Okay, this is something we can do, right? We judge each other, we judge other people. And the problem is, we'll get to this in a minute, but we're not the righteous judge, right? There's only one of those. 
And we ought not to be judging each other, but we do it. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. So once again, this is something we can do. We can condemn each other. I just gave you the the definition uh, from the OED to express an unfavorable or adverse judgment on, to indicate strong disapproval of, to censure, to pronounce, to be guilty, to sentence to punishment. These are all things that human beings can do. The one thing we cannot do is condemn someone to hell. That's God's territory and only God's territory. But if that's what he meant... Why would he say that to us? It's clearly not what he meant. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Ah, there's the opposite. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it, I think the it here is forgiveness. I think the it here is, is giving of ourselves. I think the the, the, the it here is grace, the the It here is mercy and compassion. Uh, We could talk about a bunch of those things uh, in uh, order. For with the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. The point Jesus is making here, I believe, is that we should not be in the judging and or condemning business at all. At all. First, there is a righteous judge and we are not he. Secondly, we are the scribes and the Pharisees from the previous scene. We have no basis upon which to condemn anyone. And if it weren't for Jesus, we'd all be condemnable. Instead, is it not true from this text and others that we are to do the opposite? Which is what God in Christ Jesus has done to us and for us. We are to forgive as he has forgiven us. And we are to give of ourselves to others, just as he has given of himself, his whole self, by the way, to us and for us. Okay, two more really quickly, and we're we're just about done. If you want to turn to 1 John chapter 3, I didn't get this on the the, um, uh, PowerPoint because, frankly, I ran out of time. And this is kind of a a longer passage, so I made... um, a decision. Uh, so if you want to follow along, you can. I'll highlight the, the points that I would have noted by different fonts or colors in the, uh, on the screen. 1 John chapter 3, verse, starting with verse 16. Isn't that interesting? John 3, 16. 1 John 3, 16. I'm not saying there's anything to that, but I just thought it was cool. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers and sisters. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Verse 19. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, hmm, our heart can condemn us? Yes, and often. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. 
So this is not a condemnation leading to death. This is not a condemnation leading to hell. This is a, another condemnation leading to the, uh, the possibility that we could be defeated, discouraged, um, we could be disillusioned, we could be depressed. The, the, the negative effect on us is, is just about um, infinite almost uh, of the ways that this can happen to us, but this is our hearts being condemned or our hearts condemning us. God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, so it's possible that it not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. Which is the opposite, once again, of judging and condemning. Just as he commanded us, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us. The only test of scripture by the spirit whom he has given us. Finally, that wonderfully glad and gracious statement of love and truth in Romans chapter 8 verse 1. Here it is. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How much condemnation? No. Of any kind. Death. Hell. Discouragement. Disillusionment. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And this is, this, is, this is not speaking only of that ultimate condemnation, but every kind of condemnation that would bring us down. That would lead to our demise. That would lead to our division. Maybe our departure from the church. I'm not meaning only this church, I'm meaning the church and going apostate. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Not you, not me, not even them. He condemned sin in the flesh on the cross in order that the righteous requirement of the law this is a crazy crazy statement I still can't believe it I read it every time and I think this is there's something wrong here in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us it should say in Christ right it, that's what it should say but that's not what it says it says the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us <laughs> who walk according to how or to who who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The passage, once again, for God in this way loved the world, that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. You don't have to do a thing. You're already condemned. You just keep on your merry way. And people love that is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. 
And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever, whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works, her works, have been carried out in God. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, help us to believe Jesus. Yes, hearing Jesus is important. Hearing Jesus is essential. And we looked at that last week. But we need to move beyond hearing Jesus to believing Jesus. Because it's not hearing Jesus that saves us. It's believing Jesus. Believing in Jesus, believing in everything that he has done on our behalf in order that God might might extend to us his grace. That Jesus on the cross carried our burden of condemnation, that our sin was placed upon him and God there on the cross condemned sin in the flesh, in the flesh of Jesus that should have been attributed to our account. And we thank you for that promise of the gospel. We thank you for these words here. You've you've caused to be recorded that Jesus spoke uh, on that day when he was teaching his disciples what it means uh, to, to, to be saved and what it means to be related to God in Christ Jesus by faith, what it means to be free and not... Free and not uh, in chains, free and not condemned. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us this freedom in Christ. We pray that we will use it well, that we would steward this gospel, this grace, this freedom that you have given us, and that others will hear and respond in faith, saving faith by your grace the gift of your Holy Spirit to birth us again in Christ. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would uh, allow us to leave this place encouraged, challenged, and looking forward to the next time we can gather. In Jesus' name, amen. I want us to hear this as we're leaving. First John chapter 5, verse 6. We, we looked at 1 through 5 last week. Are we heard? Listen to these, verse, these words. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. Whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he, is not belie- he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God 
does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Lord, we thank you for this truth, this promise, this hope. Be with us as we leave. Give us the strength to persevere by faith and hope in Christ Jesus. Give us the courage to stand against temptation. Give us the wisdom to hold on to your truth rather than one of its competitors. We thank you for all that you have done for us in Christ Jesus, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. See you next time.